Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today myself and guest Jessica Plummer are taking you to the swinging 60s. We're continuing our series on the history of comic books by looking at the Silver Age. All that and more after this commercial break we have no control over. Welcome back. My name is Matthew. As I said, our guest today is Jessica Plummer. Jessica's been with us for a number of episodes and kind of become one of my go-to people for anything DC-related. You've done great episodes with me on Harley Quinn and uh, Wonder Woman. And I think really, I've been really enjoying the series we've been doing on comic books. So I'm so glad to have you here with us as we get into the uh, the Silver Age. We're going to start to get into Marvel. We've been focusing so much on DC and some others today. Uh, And just great to have you with us. Jessica, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, our pleasure, our pleasure. I think this has been a, a great series and really well received. So let's just kind of dive right in. Um, we've talked about the Golden Age. We've talked about some of the stuff that comes up. Now we're getting into the Silver Age. What, what, What's the general meaning of that? What, Obviously, Silver Age is like it's almost the almost as good. But when people talk about the Silver Age, what do they mean? What are the years they're talking about? And what are the things that kind of really define this generation and era of comics? Yeah, so um, Silver Age is definitely not, it's not um, like gold is the best and silver is not as good and bronze is not as good. They're just mm-hmm. sort of, I don't know who decided to <laughs> use that terminology, but that's the terminology that was probably applied in the 80s, I would guess, um, to differentiate the eras. Um, so the time period that we're looking at, people will disagree about what exactly it is, Um but I generally think of it as being from about 1955 uh, with the debut of Barry Allen as The Flash over at DC to about 1970, which is when we get the uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow team-up comic, which is very concerned with sort of social issues. Uh, mm. So, And that kicks off the Bronze Age. So these are very DC-focused uh dates to hang that on and um if you're looking more at marvel you might say oh it doesn't really get going until 1961 for reasons that we're going to talk about uh as we get into it um but basically generally i think of it as the late 50s and the 60s um it's very much characterized by um well a lot of the stuff we talked about in the last uh history episode that we did, comics history episode that we did, um, the stuff that was enforced by the Comics Code Authority. So Right. They're still uh, alive and well and, and having a lot of influence at this time? Absolutely. They don't start to lose that power. Uh, a little bit in the late 60s, definitely starting in the 70s. By the 80s, it's not really... Nobody cares. <laughs> yeah. um, but at this point, uh, comics are very much for children, and they're very sanitized for children Mm. so morality is very black and white um that you can't you know depict uh anything too sexy anything too violent anything um that doesn't have a very clear moral any uh disrespect of authority which is real messed (laughs) up and terrifying um yeah and so interesting, since the whole idea of comics, I think especially in the way they're portrayed, even looking back, is that, you know, the comic book reading kid is the one who is disrespecting authority a little bit. They're not the, you know, straight and narrow kid. So that's definitely kind of funny. Well, I don't know that I would necessarily say that because we're coming out of, I mean, at this point, comics are still extremely widely read. 
Right. They are much more mainstream. So it's, but I'm, it's sort of an equivalent to television still at this point. Oh, and I should have been more clear. What I mean is the modern day portrayal yeah. of a kid at this time reading is the more like the nerd, the counterculture kid, et cetera. Yeah, um, which yeah, is something else not... that we're going to, you know, sort of get into. Definitely, definitely. One other question there. When you say this is being mostly marketed to kids, are we talking teenagers? Are we talking tweens? Are we talking really kids in grade school? What ages are, are we hitting with these? It depends. Um, so DC's stuff at the time was definitely mostly for a younger audience. Um, it's, it's very simplistic in a lot of the subject matter. Like the plots can be extremely convoluted and ridiculous, but the, the stories are one and done. There aren't continuing plot lines where you have to pick up the next issue. Um, the sort of mentality of the characters is very childlike. So for right. example, the Superman, Clark Kent, Lois Lane love triangle, it feels like it's written, it was written for an assumed audience of like an eight-year-old boy who hates girls and thinks they're annoying. Right. Because Lois is constantly trying to trap Superman into marriage and he's constantly trying to get out of it, which it's very childlike. It's very misogynistic. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think eight-year-old boys hate girls nearly as much as the writers (laughs) of the time thought they did. Um, Whereas, as we'll start to see with Marvel, they were aimed at a, a slightly older audience. So if DC comics are for like maybe six to 10. Mm-hmm. Marvel is more covering those middle school years when you're starting right. to, they have more, more complex um, character profiles and they deal far more with um, sort of adolescent feelings like alienation and uh, insecurity. And let's get into that. Cause I know that's, from what I understand, a real defining factor of the Silver Age is that we're starting to get a lot more characters who are, you know, if we have characters like Superman who are the ideal to look up to, Silver Age, if I understand, is a lot more about the characters we relate to and that Marvel especially is really kind of pushing that forward. Tell us more about what, what's kind of the defining ideas of this age of comics. Well, again, I would say that that's very much um, based on company. And I do also want to stress that there were other comic book companies at the time, mm. but they were like, it was like Coke and Pepsi and then like Mr. Pib. Like, who cares? Right. <laughs> like, that's, I mean, they, they did exist. Um, some of them do, you know, still are still publishing key characters like Captain Marvel or, you know, less key characters, but ones we still have like uh, Blue Beetle or right. Captain Adam. Um, but so they are there, but we are really narrowing down into a big two at this point. Um, D- and they just are... to go further on that for a second, during this time, if a company or a, uh, a character starts to get bigger, would you often have Marvel or DC try to buy them up or bring them in, into the, into their sort of umbrella? Absolutely. I think a lot of the actual buying them up happened more in the seventies and eighties mm-hmm. as those companies started to go under. But yeah, absolutely. Um, you see a lot of characters who uh, originated, especially in DC. Um, and what I find kind of charming is that now in DC's multiverse, you can kind of trace where the different characters come from because they originate in different universes that have. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, it's like they'll 
it's very metatextual. So like uh, Captain Marvel or Shazam is from Earth S and like the characters they bought from Charlton Comics who were the inspiration for the Watchmen characters are from Earth 8, I think. It's, this is, (laughs) I have a lot of really useless information in my brain (laughs) about this, clearly. Okay, so you keep dropping lines that make fascinating tangents, but I promise I'm going to be good here. I'm just going (laughs) to let you tell it to us. Let's get back to the Silver Age and especially this idea of the relatable superhero and, and the role Marvel's playing in that. Well, again, that's something that sort of divides along company lines because that relatable hero, that's really a Marvel thing. Mm. Um, DC heroes are uh, still very aspirational. Mm. Um, You still have Clark Kent and his perfect life. You still have uh, Bruce Wayne, who is a millionaire, and at this point does not have any of the angst that we associate with him. He's just a very happy millionaire with his very happy orphan child. Right. And at this point, so I mentioned that the Silver Age uh, is often considered to have started with the debut of Barry Allen. So what DC did was they looked at some of their old IP, these Golden Age characters that uh, had come into existence during World War II, that they'd stopped publishing because they weren't selling. And they said, hey, maybe we can still make money off of this. Mm. So they kept the, the core idea and they kept the name because that's the trademark, right? But they mm. changed everything else. So the Flash had been Jay Garrick, who was like a college student who breathed in hard water vapor and it made him really <laughs> fast. Of course. Which I love. Um, and now the Flash, they made a new character, Barry Allen, who is a police scientist um, who got hit by lightning and doused with chemicals and <laughs> became the Flash. So he has a new costume. He has a new backstory. He has a, he's a new person, but it's the same brand. Right. And that was extremely successful. And that was the reason that uh, this is considered the start of the Silver Age is not just because Barry Allen on his own is an important character, although he is, but because it sort of showed the companies that this was viable, right. that superheroes were not dead. Um, And DC went on to reinvent a whole host of other superheroes, uh, Green Lantern, uh, Hawkman, the Atom. They got these new makeovers, new people in the costume. Um, They really steered into the new trends at the time, which were outer space. Mm -hmm. Um, And anybody, cops, they loved cops. (laughs) Of course. Barry Allen's a cop. uh, Hal Jordan's a cop. Hawkman's a cop. They're all fucking cops. Well, and it makes a lot of sense when you think about how in our earlier episodes we talked about how much World War II had really shaped the, you know, the comics industry and that that's what everybody was thinking about. And, you know, and then the um, all, all the patriotism and stuff like that. Now we're 10 years removed from that. Probably a lot of the readers are people who are born after the war. Um, they don't have those memories of it. So and, and and especially as we get into the 60s, I know, you know, the culture is really shifting a lot and we're people are turning more inward. We're looking more at, you know, inner journeys and, and things like that. And not that I think there's a lot of hippies reading comic books, but, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the way these things kind of trickle down, it makes a lot of sense to me that the comic books, like every other part of the, of the media culture, is going to shift a lot. Oh, yeah. And, like, the, the, what you said about, you know, they, they aren't the, the kids who are reading comics at this time don't remember the war. They also don't remember 
the golden age characters, which is why, you know, you can just change everything, leave it alone for a few years and then change everything because kids would only read comics for a few years. So most readers, except for like a handful of outliers who would read them into adulthood, like big weirdos like me, (laughs) uh, most readers who were picking up a comic about Barry Allen had no idea who Jay Garrick was. Yeah. I, I think it's sometimes easy for us to forget how much our current fan culture is very, especially with comic books and superheroes, but also with things like Star Trek or Star Wars or any kind of fandom like that, is so shaped by the fact that I right now have the ability to say, oh, Blue Beetle, okay, type that into Google. I'm now going to read the entire history of Blue Beetle and the next copy of Blue Beetle that I pick up, I can have that in my head and say, oh, really, the character's doing that? But 35 years ago, the character did something else. We're talking about a time where none of that was happening and where, as it sounds like, even the person who, like, you know, loved comic books as a kid and keeps reading them for 20, 30 years and then passes them on to their kids, even that, it sounds like, is pretty rare. So I can totally imagine why you really do get pretty much a blank slate every five or five years or so. Yeah, and even, I mean, you know, nowadays, even if we didn't have the internet, you can still go to the comic book store and say, hi, I want to, like, make a poll list. So every month when you know, Batman comes in, set a copy aside for me, I'm going to come buy it. That didn't exist at the time. You were limited to what you found on the newsstand. So let's say you read the new issue of, I don't know, uh, the Hulk, and you're like, this is amazing. And then there's an ongoing story, and they don't have the next issue the next month. Then you're like, what happened? But I think also the comics did like fill in like here's what happened last time if you missed it like tv shows used to do Uh but there's also like there was just much more of the idea that you would you would put the pieces together you would if you didn't have all the information you could still proceed it's like how you know we used to miss an episode of a tv show and we'd be like oh i guess they had a fight last week i wasn't here yeah and now we're like we've lost that ability we're like what happened well even um I forget the term for it, but it's something about like returning to the status quo. But <clears throat> I know in TV writer rooms throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, really until the Internet really becomes a something of a thing, there was always that idea of television of by the end of the episode, things have to return to the way they were at the start of the episode. You yeah. know, um, the, the characters who you have always have to have their same roles. So that, that way you can jump into any episode and maybe the beginning of a new series, something changes, uh, a new character is introduced, someone changes, someone grows up, but that it has to be, you don't want someone who has to skip three episodes and then get lost and can't figure it out. Soap operas being a complete exception to that, but that's a whole other area of media <laughs> criticism we can get into. Um, but yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think also you said during this time, DC is starting to play around with Teen Titans and Doom Patrol and things like that. Where, what's the direction happening there? Um, I actually think that probably be better to talk about after we talk about the Marvel stuff. Okay. I, I, to, offline, yeah. I was going to tease you about the fact that you'd said this episode we should talk about Marvel and your fangirl so, is so strong that we don't write to DC for a long time. Oh, but... putting me on blast. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's pull it back. Let's pull it back. Sorry. Cool. So, so DC is doing that in the 50s and they're starting to change. And then I know you said that Marvel is obviously a really big part of what happens, and that kind of kicks in the 60s. So what happens in 61 and going forward that makes such a big impact on this history we're talking about? So uh, in 1961, 
Stanley and Jack Kirby gave us Fantastic Four number one, and the world of comics was never the same again. Mm. Um, so basically, Marvel looked over at, at DC and they saw the Flash. They saw this new Barry Allen character and they were like, well, that worked. Let's try some new superheroes here. Um, and actually, uh, they they even uh, dusted off some old IP for the Fantastic Four because there had been the, the Fantastic Four consists of Mr. Fantastic, uh, the Invisible Girl, who would later become the Invisible Woman, the Thing, and the Human Torch. And the Human Torch had been a Golden Age character, had been an android that could set himself on fire. Oh, um, that's, that's yeah, he, <clears throat> mm-hmm, you know. Uh, <laughs> He would team up with, like, Captain America and Namor and fight Nazis and stuff. Um, And so it was a similar case of, like, well, this name is just sitting right here on the shelf, so let's use that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, uh, uh, Lee and Kirby uh, put out this little comic about um, a scientist who decides to go into space in a rocket, just like you do, Um, with his best friend and his girlfriend and his girlfriend's teenage brother. Because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like getting in the family car. You know, it's a it's space a field Winnebago. trip. Yeah. Johnny is learning. <laughs> uh, and they go out into space to study cosmic rays, but they are bombarded by these rays and it turns them into something different. Um, and Miss, uh, Reed Richards becomes stretchy and becomes Mr. Fantastic, Sue Storm, uh, develops the ability to turn invisible and eventually force fields. Mm -hmm. Johnny Storm can set himself on fire and fly. And Ben Grimm, the best of them, turns into a big orange rock monster, (laughs) who I love. (laughs) You know, some some differences there. Well, so we've had, obviously, a lot of other heroes who got bit by us, you know, not bit by a spider yet, but something weird happened to them. And they got powers. What makes these four different? What makes the Fantastic Four such a sea change in comics history? There's a few things. Um, So with somebody like Barry Allen, who, you know, had this crazy transformation come over him, um, he looks exactly the same. It doesn't change his outward life. Like now he's the Flash, but it's just, it's sort of a bonus. Like he still has all, he already had this very good life with this job that he loved and a girlfriend who loves him and, um, one thing that I love about uh, Barry and his girlfriend, Iris, is that she doesn't really care about the Flash. Like, he's useful, but she just loves Barry. It's not a love triangle. And there's, <laughs> there's a lot of the misogyny of, like, she's chasing him to get married and he just wants to fight crime and do the important things. Not that I recall from the Silver Age Flash that I've read. Um, she's a little naggy because there's a running joke that he's late to everything. And she's right. like, why can't you be on time, Barry Allen? And he's like, I wasn't on time because I was saving the day, but I can't tell Iris that. Wink. Oh, but the gaslighting whatever. of the girlfriend. Such a great topic in comics. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but yeah, Barry still had this like shining, wonderful life. And most of these DC characters did. And he also remained... Um, uh, well, I mean... I'm going to say, he remained a paragon. We just said he kind of gaslights his girlfriend. But, like, the comics portray him as a paragon, even if from a modern lens we're right. like, mm, Barry Allen's 
kind of an asshole sometimes. Like, Clark Kent is definitely an asshole a lot of the time in this era. But by those standards, they're still aspirational. This is the right. eight-year-old boy should want to grow up to be like Barry Allen or Clark Kent, or a girl should grow, want to grow up to be like Wonder Woman or what have you. Exactly. Whereas uh, the Fantastic Four, um, first of all, their power is, I'm going to use this word because it is used very, very much in this era, but their powers turn them into quote unquote freaks. Mm. Um, much more so with Ben, with the thing than anybody else, because the other three can hide their powers. Right. Um, but they don't, they're just, they just immediately go public with it. They're like, Hey, we're the fantastic four and we can do weird stuff. Um, so they've never had secret identities, but Ben is like, he considers himself a monster. He is trapped in this body um, he can't change back. It's an ongoing, like, to this day, 60 years later, it's an ongoing plot point that, like, Reed is always trying to figure out a way to change Ben back, and they can't do it permanently. Right. Um, every time he almost gets there, it gets ripped away from him. Or, like, there's so many stories where it's like, they changed him back, but the rest of the Fantastic Four is in danger, and the only way he can save them is if he gives up on being human and becomes the thing again. Oh. And he always does it, and I always cry because I love him <laughs> so much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but that kind also, of angst, that seems like that, that, that's not what we've seen in comic books before. No, they're being tormented by, by your specialness right. is a new thing. Um, before it was always this person is special and that's what makes them so so great and now it's uh it's a blessing and a curse it's you have the great power you have the great responsibility you can do wonderful and amazing things but you maybe depending on the character might be shunned by society and like ben actually has it pretty good in like in terms of characters in the marvel universe who can't hide their powers mm -hmm. like he certainly has it better than the hulk or the x-men who are actually ostracized like he's right. a celebrity that everybody loves he's just a big rock monster right but, but no, um, no government is building sentinels to hunt down uh ben ben, ben or anything like that not as a regular like they've done that plot but not usually he's the, the ever-loving thing everybody loves him right um the other thing about them is that the character's squabble they bicker they're like mm. especially like ben and johnny are always at each other's throats and it does so the fantastic four is often called marvel's first family mm -hmm. and they really they do feel very much like a family in that <laughs> way where they're fighting all the time but they love each other right. um and that that is very um it's compelling. It's, it's likable. You want to know more about these characters because they feel more real. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. I can understand why these are often considered the much more relational characters in that regard. Um, you know, that you, you might, as a young kid, you know, read about Superman and think, wow, I'd love to be him one day. But now you're more 12 or 13 and you're fighting with your sister. Or you're having trouble with your parents or whatever. <clears throat> Reading this is now a lot more relatable. It connects to your, to your normal life. And now it's not... I think one of the things I think most fascinating about this is, as you were just saying, Barry's, Barry, Barry's life only gets better, you know, when he gets his superpowers. All the, the characters until now, it's a great thing. I love here this idea of not only great power comes great responsibility, but 
comes drawbacks and that some characters might think, you know, I wish I could have a normal life in ways that, you know, maybe the Christopher Reeve Superman does, but I don't think we ever seen that on a comics page up till now. Yeah, definitely not in this era. Like you'll see, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't want to say that the DC characters don't have any sort of quote unquote problems, right. but it's stuff like every so often Superman will be like, oh, I'm so sad that Krypton blew up, but he's like, not really that sad about it. Or like, yeah, obviously, even at this point, Bruce was like, it sucks that my parents were murdered, but he's not like crouched on a gargoyle crying about it. He's like, that was a bummer. But I'm going to assume that now that we have literally 20 years or more of writing these characters, any kind of absolute statement of, well, this character has never done that. This character, every one of these characters has now done a little bit of everything by now because we've had oh, 20 yeah. years of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Like when I talk about this stuff, I'm talking about it in the aggregate. Um, I saw once and I saw this so, so many years ago, I must have read this, God, nearly, honestly, like at least 15 years ago, maybe longer, but I once, so I I don't remember where I saw it, but I once saw the difference between the universes, at least at the time, um, described as DC's heroes are about inspiration and Marvel's heroes are about consolation. Mm, that makes which I sense. still think is a really is a really beautiful way to put it and it, it really shows like n- neither one is better it's just right. what are you looking for in what you're reading and and it really does only apply to these early years because we are now again you know six decades away from that and the companies I mean it's all the same people working back and forth between the companies and they're copying each other and they're you know DC is going wow Spider-Man did great how can we make a Spider-Man and uh Marvel is going wow the Dark Knight did or the Dark Knight Returns did great how do we do that so they they don't have that separation of tone nearly as severely anymore but interesting for the early years, I do think that that divide of inspiration versus consolation is a very succinct way to put it. Well, that makes a lot of sense, and especially in terms of why these different companies are more ascendant uh, at different times in, in history. Because this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it relates. My mother used to love to talk about how if you watch like different eras of Star Trek, that they really reflect a lot of the era that they're from, you know, and that the original series Star Trek is basically like a sociological study of the 60s and what did they dream about versus like some of the more modern versions. And and granted, to some extent, I'm, I'm guessing here, but I have to imagine that, you know, the shift from aspirational and let's look to the, the best we could be versus the like, let's be more aware, you know, that this is happening at the same time that divorce rates are going up and people are talking more about the nuclear family, not necessarily being like the perfect, happy, smiling thing. And we're just getting more discussion in general about, you know, maybe that the the ideals of, you know, the America in the 50s are not always exactly what they're cracked up to be. Granted, it's all in a comics code and it's all like, you know, aimed at kids. But but I feel like it makes sense that at the time that society as a whole is turning more into, yeah, the best family squabble. It's not always leave it to beaver that that comics, along with everything else, would do that, too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also a little bit of a chicken and egg thing because, you know, you see, so Fantastic Four, number one, comes out and the series goes on to be very successful and begets a 
a number of other characters who we should probably do like mm-hmm. at least a quick rundown of some of the major ones that came out over the next five years. Um, but the the idea of heroes with personal problems, heroes who weren't always their best selves, heroes where having a power was both a blessing and a curse. Um, you see more and more of that with Marvel. And then you see DC uh, in the second half of the decade starting to emulate that as well. And, you know, it, did this resonate with audiences like did Lee and Kirby do this because the culture was changing and they thought it would resonate with audiences or did they just do it because that's just how they how they wrote and how they worked and it caught on and you know what I mean like was it popular because of the culture or was it popular because it was popular and then I don't think that the comics changed the culture necessarily but I do think that they're all trending together. Uh, For sure. Yeah, I mean, I think... In concert. I think what you said about the chicken egg is perfect, that there's no... The way media evolves and the way the rest of the culture evolves are always very deeply intertwined, and one affects the other, and then the other affects it. And um, But like just in terms of the influence, I know um, I spent a long time being very fascinated with the activism of the 60s and the hippies and the you know 1968 <clears throat> protests and all that kind of stuff. And um, I think it may have been Abby Hoffman. I'm not sure. It might be Jerry Rubin or one of the other of the like real hippie side of the anti-war activists. Uh, in his biography, at one point mentions, you know, that one of his first sort of inspirations to the idea that you didn't have to be the same as everything was some of the comics he was reading as a as a younger person in the early '60s. So, um, I mean, that's just, just one example. But I think yeah, there's definitely ways in which these things are being affected by the culture, but also affecting some people in the culture, and that. It, it it makes sense to me that at this time that we're seeing more countercultures kind of arise, that comics are kind of going in the same directions. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to do what you talked about and go down this rundown of who is it that Marvel introduces in the 60s. But let's just start with Lee and Kirby and the, the Marvel method and sort of the way they're producing things. Tell us a little bit about these two, because I think people know the names a lot, but we don't really know much about them often. Okay, so... Um... We talked about Jack Kirby a bit when we talked about the Golden Age because he he had already been working in comics during the uh, Second World War or before the Second World War. Um, And in the early years, um, he co-created Captain America. um, And he'd actually also done some stuff at DC, kind of went back and forth between the two. Um, And then he was drafted and he was in the army. He saw combat. Mm -hmm. As so many comic book creators uh, of the time were, he was Jewish. His real name was Jacob Kurtzberg. He's from New York. Um, and uh, he, was, he was just the greatest. Like, <laughs> I just love Jack Kirby. I love both of them um, for different reasons. Um, I love Jack Kirby for the same reason I love the thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he put a lot of himself into that character. Oh, I'm sure. And that sort of irascible jewish grandpa persona is very is very palpable i I think we talked about in one of our earlier episodes the the now fairly famous story of how you know they were getting anti-semitic harassment and and he basically just challenged someone like meet me outside the 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 building uh and i'll happily discuss this with my fists with you i mean it's a you know it's the literal let's step outside moment that was the king Mm -hmm. um so uh yeah he'd already he already had some um successes under his belt um and uh stanley 
uh, aka Stanley Lieber, um, also Jewish kid from New York. Um, so uh, Stan had also been working in comics from a very, very young age. He was basically an intern. Like that wasn't mm. a title that they had then, but he was hired uh, at Timely. The Timely Comics would go on to become Marvel uh, when he was 17 Wow. Uh, back in 1939, um, and he was he was like a gopher. He was like getting lunch for people and filling inkwells, which I love because like n- nobody does that now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he used Stanley as a pen name. He started writing uh, when he was 19. He used Stanley as a pen name because um, it was partially like um, hiding the Jewishness, but uh, also in large part because comics were considered very unsavory at the time right so it was not more like not a resume if you wanted to go into exactly right it wasn't he wasn't hiding who he was from comics he was kind of hiding comics from who he was yeah um but uh the timely decided to make him publisher <laughs> right before he turned 19 which is i mean it's both it's both very impressive and also kind of goes to show that like nobody wanted to work in this industry and also i mean this was in 1941 so a lot of guys were overseas right men Um, men in their 20s and 30s were pretty busy at this time yeah and he he was also um he also enlisted um but he did not see combat Mm -hmm. um so he uh went on to just stay an editor at Marvel. Um, he was editor in chief until 1972. Wow. Uh, like 41 to 72 is just crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he took over as publisher and he was publisher uh, for another few decades there. Um, I want to say 94. But one, one thing I saw in my notes is that at one point he was writing romance comics, which I would love to get my hand on one of those. I think that'd be fascinating to write. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about was how a lot of these comics, um, you can see sort of the pedigree of uh, uh, they're not classic superhero comics the same way that, for example, the Flash and Green Lantern stuff over at DC is you can really see the pedigree of other genres, um, especially horror and crime comics. Mm. So we haven't gotten into these characters yet, but like if you look at the first appearance of Spider-Man, it's a crime comic. It's, right. it's a kid who fails to stop a crime and his uncle dies. Um, if you look at uh, the Hulk, that's a horror comic. This man is irradiated and turns into a monster. And if you look at the way that these characters um, talk about romance, they're they're romance comics. They they have all of those legacies embedded in them. Like there will be pages where (laughs) there's this one panel from a Silver Age Daredevil comic. It's like one of the first five issues or something. It's very early. And I love it because like you can barely see the characters because there's so many angsty thought bubbles. Oh my god! <laughs> where Matt is like, I love Karen Page, but I can never tell her because I'm daredevil and she could never love a blind man. Which there's a lot of uh, messed up ableism in the early mm-hmm. comics. And then 
Karen is like, oh, I love Matt so much, but I can't say anything because I'm just a girl. And Foggy is like, I love Karen, but I think she loves Matt. And they're like being choked out by these enormous thought bubbles of like ridiculous soap opera sadness. And at least Netflix completely like, you know, moved past all of that. That wasn't baked into the heart of the show. They did not include thought bubbles. Thank God. That's true. That's true. Well, But even that, I mean, that's a huge change. You know, if you think about, you know, Batman and Bruce Wayne or Clark Superman, you know, gazing off into the future and all the big things they have to do while these women chase after them. That's so different than, you know, Peter Parker trying to win the heart of Mary Jane or Stacey Gwen or whoever it is at the time. Gwen Stacy. I just got a whole bunch of hate mail for that. Um, oh, no. But, but I'm yeah, sorry to tell you it was actually Betty Brandt. And, okay. uh, um, oh, God, blanking. Uh, Liz Allen. Okay. We didn't have Mary Jane or Gwen Stacy yet. Mm, That makes sense. But yes, so it it seems like this is the kind of trend all along, is that we're going for these more relatable characters. They have really much richer inner lives in terms of inner thoughts and stuff like that, and that they're not all about um, fighting crime and the villain. It's a lot of times just about high school or paying the bills or fighting with my family or my partner or whatever it is. Yeah, like they want things. DC's superheroes just kind of want justice, right? which again is great and it's a good thing to want. And you do, I mean, you do see some of this. Like I've been, I've literally been rereading uh, Silver Age Green Lantern stuff right now. And yes, Hal does spend a lot of time being like, why does Carol love Green Lantern more than she loves my secret identity? But the the level of um, soapiness is really cranked up uh, for Marvel and the level of pining mm-hmm. um, is really cranked up. But right. to get back to your actual question, <laughs> um, so that's that's who uh, Stan and Jack were at the time. Um, and uh, they're, they're sort of an apocryphal story. The thing about um, all of these guys, but especially Stan Lee, is that like this is... It, we're getting into the realm of myth making here. Right. And so it is often very hard to say what actually happened. Who's telling the truth? Who is, I don't even think that like anybody is necessarily deliberately lying. I think it's just when you're remembering something that you did offhand 50 years ago, your recall might not be 100%. um, But there is an apocryphal story that Stan was planning on quitting Marvel and, uh, his wife was like, well, I, I don't know, just because he was given this assignment to come up with new superheroes. And his wife was like, I don't know, go hog wild, do whatever you want, because you're quitting. And he was like, okay. <laughs> but then, you know, and he's like, and then I created the Fantastic Four. But then if you look at things Jack Kirby says, he's like, I basically created the Fantastic Four. And Stan was also there. Right. So, and I mean, Jack Kirby did create a team called the Challengers of the Unknown, for DC four years prior, which they're, they're basically, it's like a scientist and uh, his best friend, who's like the muscle and a kid brother. Right. And the only difference is like, there's like the lead, the leader, and there's the scientist. And with the fantastic four, those are combined into one character so they can add a girl. Mm -hmm. The challengers, (laughs) the unknown don't have a girl. Um, good. So it, 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 it's hard to say who did what, which is also in part due to, um, what you're saying, the, what you mentioned before the Marvel method. Right. 
Well, and I, I want to get into Marvel Meth in a second, but I, I think it's important to say there that clearly these things are important, and it's, I think, a problem when people are not given enough credit because they're part of these sort of larger things where there's that one person at the top who's like the big name. But that by no means is unique to comic books. I mean, we're seeing that in, you know, there are 8 million stories of people who will say that they gave George Lucas the idea for like this part of Star Wars or that part of Star Wars or, you know, every kind of big music group where there's these questions of like, okay, who wrote what song and how much was it influenced by these things? You know, Paul and Paul and John Lennon, you know, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, they're the big name. So they get most of the credit and, and all these kind of things. So it's. It, it's both unfortunate that that happens, but it also feels like that's just a fundamental part of what happens when you often get these kind of one person who's seen as like the, the face of it because media loves to have one person to, to, to mythologize. But it's actually this whole industry, this whole business of people working with them and under them to create this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I, I personally hate the auteur theory of film and Mm -hmm. you see people try to apply it to comics as well. And I mean, you can have a comic. There are many, many comics, especially in the indie sphere that are written and drawn and inked and everything by one person. And then sure. Yeah. You've got an an auteur, but not when you're cranking out monthly funny books for the house of ideas. That's not an auteur. That's, that's a factory. So, so what is the Marvel method? So, um, the and I think part of what you're saying about like how uh, people like to latch on to one name, um, it's especially endemic in comics because people don't really know how comics are made. Mm. Um, so, the sort of quote unquote traditional way, and the way that uh, I believe most DC comics are done, and many other publishers. Um, is the writer writes a script and it kind of looks like a movie script. Um, and then that is handed to the artist, the penciler, who then draws it. So the writer dis- determines, you know, everything that happens in it, including the dialogue. And the artist draws it. And even within that, there's a very wide range of like how detailed, you know, like as a writer, I could say they have a fight on this page and the human torch wins. Or I could say this page has nine panels in panel one, the human torch bursts into flames in panel two, you know, there's a, how much, how detailed the writer gets. It depends on the, the writer and the team and the comic in question. Right. Um, But that's sort of the traditional way. The Marvel method um, has the writer and the artist, talking and they say okay what's going to happen in this comic and they hash out the plot of the comic together and then the artist draws it and then the writer comes back in and fills in all the dialogue and narration and I don't mean they actually write it in that's still the letterer but they say okay in this panel Reed is going to be saying blah 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 and then Sue is going to be saying blah 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 they write a script to accompany the pictures Right. They fill in, you know, oh, that character's mouth is open. I guess he's saying something. <laughs> um, and so it, it, it's, a, you know, especially back in the day when everybody was literally physically in an office, like it's hard to do the Marvel method. Well, maybe not so much because we have the Internet, but it's very easy to do the Marvel method when you can just look at the desk next to you. Right. And it's a lot harder when people are not all, you know, centralized in one place. Um, but it also... Even there, you have this huge 
gulf between, you know, does, does Stan call Jack and say, hey, I've got a great idea for a story where a giant alien comes to Earth to eat the planet and the Fantastic Four stop him. Okay, go draw it. Right. Or does he call Jack and he say, and say, hey, uh, so this, they find out about this alien this way and his name is Galactus and he has this uh, uh, herald called the Silver Surfer and like, is the writer coming up with all those ideas and yeah. telling the artist? Does the artist come up with all of them? Do they come up with them together? Yeah, I mean, it's a collaborative it, process. You can see how both, on the one hand, it's this sort of beautiful thing of teamwork. On the other hand, when you're later trying to figure out who did what and who gets credit, that can lead to a lot of problems and bruised egos and all kinds of things like that. Right, especially when Stan Lee is suddenly editor-in-chief and he is credited with writing every single comic that Marvel is putting out. <laughs> that seems maybe impossible. That seems like maybe he was calling Steve Ditko and saying, hey, I think in this issue Spider-Man should fight the vulture and then hanging up the phone. Yeah. And Ditko was like, I guess I'll come up with an entire <laughs> comic myself. That makes sense. Yeah, so I can see how it really goes. And um, I will just say here, uh, Jessica wrote a fantastic obituary of Stan Lee that really goes into a lot of this. And so we have a lot to talk about today. Obviously, we're not going to go into to all of it, but I would definitely recommend um, people read that and the link to it will be in the show notes because it really goes into both the you know, why we hero-wise Stan Lee and why he's an incredibly important figure, but also why maybe, you know, like with any mythology, there's some truth to it that often isn't as pretty as, as it's made out to be. Well, thank you. And yeah, I mean, I, I want to be clear. I I am very fond of Stan Lee. Like one of my greatest Comic-Con memories is, it was like the second or third New York Comic-Con and we were all waiting in line to get in. It was taking forever and everybody was getting really fidgety and unhappy and Stan Lee just like came down into the basement of the Javits Center to give everybody a high five. It was That's like amazing. thousands of people because he was a showman and he loved, he loved fans. He loved comic book readers and he loved the industry. And I mean, look, the guy, he, again, he was, he was a showman. He was a self aggrandizer. Um, and he could be full of shit a lot of the time, <laughs> but it was like, I, I just, it, I'm also like, that's my comics grandpa. Yeah. I have one comics grandpa who's going to fight you and one comics grandpa who's going to lie to you. <laughs> and I can and just imagine I love them, them squabbling both. at Thanksgiving, you know, like that exactly. makes sense. Or Passover, because let's remember, they're both Jewish. Yes, they will, they're coming to Passover with us. And then I have my other comics grandpa, Denny O'Neill, but we'll get to him in the Bronze Age episode. Awesome. So we're at about 50 minutes now. So I think we're actually going to break this up into two episodes. So... Uh, I want to take a quick moment to thank everybody who's been listening. There's a whole bunch more we're going to discuss in part two. But for the moment, uh, Jessica, for anybody who's been hearing you for the first time or just wants to get reminded, if they're really into the stuff you're talking about, they want to know more about what you're saying and writing, where can they find more of your work? Um, yeah, so I uh, have a lot of my comics writing at bookriot.com. Uh, where I'm a contributing editor, and I also uh, have a podcast that is uh, more DC than this um, uh, called Flights and Tights. It's a Superman movie podcast, and you can find that wherever podcasts are not sold because they're free, but <laughs> it's there. Um, and I'm on Twitter at Jess underscore Plumber. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you as always. Um, and to our listeners, what's your take on this? Is this history that you know and you have other ideas to share or contributions? 
Are there more questions you want to um, throw in, throw at us that we can discuss in later episodes? What's your what if this is new to you? We'd love to hear it. You can find out all the ways to contact us. First of all, by searching for the Ethical Panda. That's where I do all the social media for all my different podcasts. You can find information there about superhero ethics as well as Star Wars Universe podcast, PandaVision, a couple other podcast projects I'm a part of. And on the webpage, theethicalpanda.com, you'll find all my social media. You can also just go to strandedpanda.com. This is a proud member of the Stranded Panda Podcast Network. And there you'll find information about those podcasts as well as other great podcasts about the MCU. We have one just on the DC Universe, Star Wars, Star Trek, all sorts of great stuff like that. So one more time, Jessica, thank you so much. I'm really excited. We're going to continue this conversation in part two, which will come out soon. But for everyone else, thank you so much. Have a great day.